For everyone with an interest in MASH or, more broadly, steatotic liver disease, surf's up. Surfing the MASH Tsunami's annual year-end interviews with some of the people who made a difference in the mozzled world in 2023, Season 4, Episode 50+, plus, starts now. Today on Surfing the MASH Tsunami. We've always tried to nag a little bit about the role of, of alcohol and then keep coming back to this. But it's been nice that we've now at least acknowledged that this is a, this can be a problem. And this can be a lot of confounding and, and it's still going to be super difficult to measure it. When we start to even more construct the clinical pathways, we really need to simplify it as, as much as possible for our colleagues in primary care that will see the bulk of these patients. 95% of all referrals to hepatology for muscles are viewed by hepatology in the UK to be not net required. So if we moved all of those scans out into the community, we're only going to pick out the 5% that we actually need to be seeing in hepatology and then get the right patient to the right person. I don't know what you think, Roger, in a sort of um, in a historical background. It takes some time to implement an intervention, right? So I think it probably, in that regard, is more like hypertension in the 50s. We have a ton of work to do to figure out what's going to work, what drugs are going to work and how to get the right drug or the right combination therapies for the right people. And even the care paradigms as a momentous year in steatotic liver disease comes to an end, the Surfing the MASH Tsunami team is reviewing the year with some of our favorite guests. Today, liver health advocate Louise Campbell and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green interview hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Hannes Haxström about his work and his view of the broader issues in hepatology on the Surfing the MASH Tsunami podcast. Morning, Louise and I are here with our good friend Hannes Hochs from the UEG's Rising Star of the Year for 2023. Hannes, how does it feel to be a rising star? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a very interesting. So uh, I actually got some time deducted for parental leave. Uh, <laughs> so otherwise, I would not have been eligible. Otherwise, I think it's more mostly a sort of acknowledgement of, of the work that my group is doing. Also, I feel a bit old for a rising star, but I'll take it. So congratulations to you and your group. And one more thing to thank your children for. So. On the days when they're being particularly bratty and you can't remember why you did this, just keep in mind that what you have to be thankful for is that you were a rising star long enough to win this recognition. I'll have to tell my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) And congratulations again. That's a tremendous acknowledgement. And and as you point out, for you and the group and the work you all have been doing. So, Honest, just to start, 2023 is a pretty amazing year. I think in in fatty or steatotic liver space, name it what you will. What phrase or, or what kind of feeling or phrase or word would you use to summarize what you see the year as having been? I'm not sure, Roger, but but I think there was a lot of uh, nice things, of course, happening in 2023. Uh, of course, a few sort of more more positive results for for uh, uh, for therapies, and we're all, of course, waiting for the final paper for the resmeterom uh, data. I haven't seen that yet, at least to sort of scrutinize those details. And then, of course, we had a lot of nice interactive meetings with ESOL and ASLD and and the ASLD uh, summit. So there was a lot of things happening with the new terminology as well and uh, sort of driving the field forward, I think. If you had to pick one of those and you said this is the biggest of them or most important of them, is there one you can single out? For me, it was, we've always 
try to nag a little bit about the role of, of alcohol and I keep coming back to this but it's been nice that we now at least acknowledge that this is a, this can be a problem and this can be a lot of confounding and, and it's still going to be super difficult to measure it but at least now we're sort of acknowledging it and saying that well this can actually be a problem and especially it can be a problem which is solvable for clinical trials so that was of course sort of a step in the right direction I think which is acknowledged with the, with the new terminology this interaction uh, what, what else was interesting I thought also I think we came some way with the acknowledgement that when we want to make a prognosis in liver disease, it seems like non-invasive tests are give the sort of the same information as uh, biopsy. Um, moving another step away from doing a biopsy in patients, but rather sort of being able to non-invasively estimate the stage of fibrosis. And then, of course, we need more data to show that, well, actually, if we use non-invasive tests to look at treatment response, can we also... Uh, can we also use non-invasive tests for that? But at least for prediction purposes, it seems like we can use non-invasive tests such as FibroScan with the same sort of detail as we do for, for biopsy. Interesting. On your first point, one of the interviews that we're doing as part of this series is with Fatty Liver Foundation and the uh, Sober Liver Group, who actually merged this year in the aftermath of nomenclature. And uh, I was one of those who felt that one of the real benefits of nomenclature was the recognition of MED-ALD as a thing and putting everything on a continuum, which is kind of what you're talking about. It will be interesting to hear from them what their decision to merge these two patient advocate groups had to do with this recognition, because I think there's real power in breaking down that artificial barrier, you know, and, and I think your work had a tremendous amount to do with people understanding that from an epidemiological point of view. It'll be interesting to see how, how that played on these folks' lives. Have you seen it yet have an impact on your work, the uh, change in nomenclature and the recognition of med ALD and, and, the, and the continuum? It depends. Of course, it has some bearing on what we do, and there's, um, I think there maybe were a bit too many of these studies coming out, looking at the difference between different definitions, MASLD, MASLD, NAFLD, and so on. And just uh, there's a lot of, a little bit too much studies looking at that. So I think we have enough on our feet right now to say that these are pretty much uh, overlapping and we don't need new biomarkers to separate MASLD from, from, from NAFLD and we don't need new natural history studies and, and, and so on. Maybe it will, of course, lead to some confusion right now, but when we talk to, to other stakeholders in the business, such as endocrinologists and primary care physicians and so on, and some people have said to me, you know, we're just getting our eyes up open for, for, for for NAFLD and now we want to change the name so so of course there's going to be some resistance in in the start but I think that always happens when you when you make changes and people are always uncomfortable with making changes so it's better we do it now and there will be some confusion of course in the start but hopefully we can transition over to a more sort of stable environment uh, within the coming years or so. One would hope and I think over the last month, I'm going to say, starting at ASLD, all the, any controversy that was remaining around the nomenclature change has pretty much gone away. Um, folks who were less likely to support it have come to do so. And I've said this several times, but the two-hour presentation that Maru Ranella and Mina Bonsal co-chaired in Boston that demonstrated, you know, the regulatory was on board and the patients overmapped them, I think pretty well demonstrated that this was something worth doing. I, I agree. And I think that goes for us people within the field, but for people outside the field, like endocrinologists, 
technology people and, and uh, primary care and so on. We still have some educational activities we need to do to get everybody on board uh, our new definition that can take an additional amount of time and work, but I think they will come around as well. Okay, so do you see any storm clouds in 2023? Uh, things that happened over the course of the year that were not so good or not so good in the moment or suggested things we need to pay more attention to down the road? Two things that <laughs> concerns me, and that's, of course, is the, how do we convince regulatory agencies to go away from liver biopsy in clinical trials. I think we do have enough evidence that non-invasive tests can do really good work here. And we have to remember that there's actually quite little evidence showing that improving a biopsy will actually translate to improved prognosis, which is, of course, what we expect, but there's not too much evidence in that field. So what's it going to take for us to, to sort of have a non-invasive biomarker as, as an outcome in clinical trials? That's, of course, one thing. But then there's also... How are we going to manage clinical pathways for all of these patients? When I'm discussing with primary care, for instance, in my local region in Stockholm, they are quite concerned being overwhelmed with patients and not knowing what to do. So I think when we start to even more construct the clinical pathways, we really need to simplify it as, as much as possible for our colleagues in primary care that will see the bulk of these patients. And I had a nice example, or we made a discussion with an example from primary care. So when primary care physicians have patients with diabetes, they know they should send them for a retinopathy scan because people know that you can go blind for having a uncontrolled diabetes. So what happens then, at least in, in my, my region, is that the primary care, they will send a referral to a retinopathy screening center, but they will then take care of the patient. You know, they will do the scan, they will uh, interpret the results and they will say, well, you need to do another scan a bit shorter to, to monitor you, or we actually need to treat you with laser therapy or whatever. But in essence, they will take the patient away from the primary care office. So they will acknowledge ownership of the problem, so to say. So are we ready for that in hepatology to take ownership of everybody with, a, for instance, a, a, um, an elastography more than 8 kilopascal and, uh, and sort of own the patient? Do we have the services available for that? I'm not sure, but I guess we will see when we get approved drugs and so on, because I think that will probably drive a lot of the, of the process. You know, it's interesting in the state they have a different way of looking at this stuff. And I don't think it's a better way, but it's a different way. And then we were talking about with Naeem Al-Khoury, I guess last week. Basically, his point was primary care does not like the idea that you take their patients away from them. And, and in the States, that's real because of the economics of the system is the more patients you see, the more money you make in very, very linear, almost Pavlovian way. That's number one. Number two is his point was that if you follow the clinical care pathway rules as currently written, you're going to send every diabetic patient to get scanned. And then you're going to send seven 70 or 80% of them back saying that patient doesn't require hepatology care. And the other 20%, the hepatologist is going to steal the patient. So if you think about it in terms of stimulus response psychology, there's very little in that system to, to motivate primary care to do the right thing. Now, I see you nodding. A, how is that different in Europe? And B, how do you deal with that issue, do you think? So when I'm talking about ownership, I'm not talking about the entire patient. You know, if we in hepatology would take a patient from primary care, it would only be due concerning their liver. You know, we would not do maybe statin initiation for hyper epidemia or primary prevention or things like this. I think primary care in at least my local region are concerned about having to interpret a lot of uh, test results they're not comfortable with, they're not used to. You know, a patient with elevated transaminases with a uh, intermediate FIB4 and, and a fiber scan level of 11, what should they do with them? How often should they see them? They are not used to that at all. So I think we need to do a lot of educational activities to help our partners in primary care. But we probably will also need to think a little bit about how we do our 
our care models and how we keep our patients within hepatology services. Maybe we need to build more, you know, nurse-led uh, appointments. We, for instance, at Karolinska where I'm working, we have a, mostly a nurse-led fiber scan service. So patient is referred from primary care. They do a fiber scan if they are above a certain level. They are referred to a doctor, but if they are below that cutoff, they are sent back to primary care with some instructions. So that sort of takes away a lot of the work for pathologists that can then focus, you know, more on the advanced patients with HEC, with decompensated cirrhosis, transplant evaluations, and, and, and so on. So, Louise, that sounds like something for you to follow up on. <laughs> oh, obviously, but I totally agree with Hannes and all of the data that we've got in the UK and areas that use nurse-led models do benefit that. You'll absolutely hit the nail on the head about overwhelming. I think we have the nice guidance now that is going to potentially deliver FibroScan access to primary care. How do we roll that out? How do we manage it? Yes, there is this big fear of overwhelming, but if having just done a project on this particular case and submitted the report... 95% of all referrals to hepatology for muzzles are viewed by hepatology in the UK to be not net required. So if we moved all of those scans out into the community, we're only going to pick out the 5% that we actually need to be seeing in hepatology and then get the right patient to the right person, which frees up capacity over time. But what we do, and I think this is where nurse-led models and the way that we can look at developing unique care is that you've got hepatology nurse specialists in the community, working with primary care physicians to upskill their knowledge in hepatology, getting the right patients to the right test, but also sharing with your diabetes specialist nurse, your cardiac nurse, and becoming that multi-comorbidity team. We can spread the workload. You're perfectly correct, but what is going to happen and what I see happen is in the most countries, we develop it after we get the technology rather than look at developing it together. And then it becomes more complicated. I think it's either your system or the Danish system. They've got a very good multi-comorbidity clinic set up and the UK government have used it as a base to look at chronic disease management. Whether or not that's what gets rolled down into the NHS, I don't know, but it was a great model. So we do have to be careful. I would like to think we won't overwhelm if we do it the right way. And this is where our strength in education of allied health and nurse specialists become absolutely vital as we get new medications in the next few years to target, but also to manage those on semaglutide and the other ones that are having a direct effect. That's for me, that, that storm cloud and that big risk of how we develop pathways is absolutely key. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think this is really something we need to think through, but it's also something probably that will have to be locally adapted to different settings. The system in the UK is quite different from Sweden or from Denmark or from US. So probably a lot of different alternative pathways will need to be developed and sort of tailored to the local needs, but also the local um, resources. Not everybody will have funding to buy a fiber scan and not everybody will, will, you know, have access to ELF and so on and so forth. So it will probably be a sort of a, a mess in the start, how it, how it looks like. But I guess that's true for also for, for other diseases. So why should we be, be different? Yeah, I think you're right. But I think the mess is a top-down approach where everybody is given the same. And you are perfectly right that even in the UK, one pocket of GP practices is totally different to another set. Their dynamics, their ethnicity breakdown, they will have a different model of how they're looking after liver care. But that can work if we do the bottom-up 
let's develop this in the community to deliver to the community. But what tends to happen is we get the government making a decision then in healthcare and it goes out without that broader look. I'd like to see it come the other way. Let's design bespoke specific programs that deliver the best care in the best area for and the right care for that yeah, but I, I do agree i mean people are, are more and more picking up the importance of steatotic liver disease also in other fields at least here in sweden we now sort of get invites to come and talk to the cardiology uh, meetings or the endocrinology meetings and so on so there is sort of less what you call it resistance from those fields today i think than it was maybe five or ten years ago so i think we're moving in the right direction but it will probably <laughs> it will take some time to develop this i don't know what you think roger in that sort of um the historical background how, how it takes some time to, to implement an intervention right somebody described this as being like hypertension in the 1950s it feels to me a little more like cholesterol in 1985 that really uh, that lov- lovastatin was the equivalent of resmeterom except lovastatin was the definitive mode of action to use for first line cholesterol treatment now we just had to get good enough statins whereas here we don't know what the first line is so i think it probably in that regard is more like hypertension in the 50s we have a ton of work to do to figure out what's going to work uh, what drugs are going to work and how to get the right drug or the right combination therapies to the right people and even the care paradigms. Are we going to use a cancer kind of induction maintenance model? Honest, I think there are a ton of questions and this is a softball and I admit this, but the folks with the really good epidemiologic data sets are the ones who are likely to have a leg up in figuring out how a lot of this goes together. What work are you folks doing right now that you're comfortable sharing with us that, that addresses these kinds of issues? Yeah, so we're doing um, quite a lot actually since I have a pretty big group. I have uh, almost hard time keeping track of all the products people are are doing but those are in essence part of the strategy we are looking at prediction modeling but also treatment response right now we're working quite a lot on a new prediction model that is probably or it is a lot better than the fib4 score as you know fib4 is, is mainly what we we recommend in all the guidelines but we have to remember that this it's mostly a thing of you know being first when you develop something everybody starts to use it and then something actually even better is coming along but people are not using it because you're so used to the first intervention or test. So we're developing a adapted model. It's uh, one of my brilliant postdocs, Rikard Strandberg, who is a mathematician and statistician who is doing this. And we have developed this in, in, in Swedish data and it performs a lot better than FIB4. Now we're the, the next aim is to validate it in, in a few external cohorts. So we hope to get that published. But that could be another prediction model, for instance, that is then you know, developed actually in the target population, which is primary care. FIB4, as you know, developed in a population of patients with HIV, HCV. And with biopsies, so it's very selected, whereas this model is developed directly in primary care, aiming to develop that to look at the risk for liver-related outcomes. So that is one thing we hope to get published in 2024. It's going to be presented as an oral now at NASHTAG. Another interesting aspect we're doing is trying to look at pretty advanced techniques called emulated target trials, which is a rather novel way to use observational data to answer causal questions. And then you can actually use uh, historical data on drugs, for instance, um, with the sort of the aim of repurposing, for instance, GLP-1, so SGLT2 inhibitors. And then you can compare with, yes, pretty advanced um, statistical techniques and uh, you can get estimates for intention to treat, but also per protocol effects. Uh, so you can follow patients over time and see if they stop the drug or restart and so on. And there we have also some interesting results for GLP-1s that will also be presented at uh, NASHTAG. So those are things we're doing in a 
then we're also, of course, moving in the field of treatment response biomarkers. How do you know when something works? Well, that's pivotal, right? Yeah. Because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. When do we switch drug? Right. So in the work that you're doing so far, what are you learning might be keys to solving that problem to the degree that you can talk about it? Well, now we're sort of more in the stage of collecting all the all the data that would be needed for such an analysis. It's not also not super straightforward because we don't we don't have any drugs, you know, available right now. So you have to take something else like weight loss or a proxy for, for a drug intervention to work. Like if you have patients, for instance, on GLP-1s that are losing weight and that are reducing their ALT measures, you can say that, okay, probably, and that do not get an outcome. For instance, if you can, you can we can follow patients in our uh, records for five or 10 years and we see, okay, they initiated a GLP-1, they stayed on a GLP-1, they lost weight and they didn't get an outcome within five or 10 years. And then you can see, okay, what biomarkers predict that? And then you can contrast that with patients that get a GLP-1, don't lose weight, for instance, or actually do develop an outcome even though they were on a GLP-1. And that could be at least a proxy for that they don't have an effect of the drug. But of course, there are a lot of unanswered questions in this field. You know, can we use the same uh, model or, or same biomarkers for different drugs? You know, when resmetinone comes, we will not be, be uh, expecting a, a, loss, um, a lower BMI. So what should we use there? So a lot of unanswered questions in, in, in this field, of course. I have to tell you, honest, this is a really exciting conversation to listen to because it's so much better a grade of questions than we were asking three or four years ago. That the community has to make a lot of progress to get to the point where these are the questions that matter. So in that regard, I, I just find this, this whole conversation really uplifting. I guess the conversation is rising. Maybe that metaphorically aligns with rising star, maybe not. But maybe that's why you get to be an aging, an aging rising star is because this stuff is so uplifting. Uh, Dying star. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't burn out anytime soon. So when you look at 2024, what do you foresee as the major events that are likely to happen over the course of the year, besides the obvious, which is obviously March 14th, right? And, and the Padufa date for Rosmiro. Beyond those, what are the things that you're looking forward to this year as having the ability to change the game once more, push us one more step forward? Uh, I'm not sure, Roger. I think there are a lot of things that we can probably expect to happen in 2024, but if it's going to be game-changing or not, who knows? I hope there will be come out a, a bit more biomarker data from uh, Litmus and uh, Nimble. Uh, of course, I'm not sure. You better you know, ask the guys, uh, Quentin and, and Arun and so on, but maybe we can see some some um, new exciting biomarkers coming from, from uh, those collaborations, but also uh, they start now to get quite a lot of follow-up data and some years that have passed. So if they can get uh, predictive biomarkers and treatment response by more, more advanced biomarkers that would be of course quite um, interesting other than that uh, of course our own studies that will hopefully help us a little bit in designing maybe better prediction models and so on from our perspective we do hope that we can actually get more collaborations going on i think the field really needs more international collaborations and a bit more um, pooling of the data uh, there are a few of those nice initiatives going on but it can be probably even more professionalized now it's you know more of an idealistic basis that you just contact the people you know but it would be interesting if the societies could take an even stronger role in, in making us uh, you know pooling data and answer questions that really really matters we have um, maybe i can't describe any details but we're part of a nice collaboration with professor vincent wong from hong kong that led a really nice um, collaboration on on um, uh, prognostic impact 
impact of VCDE, for instance. And suddenly, uh, with a lot of collaboration, we collected, I think it was more than 13,000 patients and so on. That's the kind of data you need to answer some of our questions. And that cannot be done, uh, you know, with a local setting. You collaborate with um, maybe your best friend and you come up with 500 patients, but it doesn't really it doesn't push the field. Yeah. I think we really need to make better research and uh, bigger cohorts. So looking forward to a few of those collaborations in the next year. Is there anything you see on the horizon that might be a storm cloud or something to pay attention to avoiding or dealing with in the next year? It's always, of course, a risk that some of the, the, the studies we think will be positive will turn out to be negative. Who knows? But I can't give you a guess on that. But it's, of course, it's always a sort of a bit of a storm cloud. Of course, there are, so there's a lot of interest from some companies now and some have backed away. Uh, I think still they will probably, you know, drive a lot of the change that will come because it's professionalizing the whole field in a much different way than us poor academics can do on our on our own. <laughs> you know, as an academic, you need to know everything. You need to be a researcher, but you also need to be like a PR person and a lawyer and a HR person and uh, whatever. And of course, we don't, don't then don't do the, those tasks the best. So it's better if we, we try to professionalize this and, and do it, uh, of course, together with, with um, our partners in pharma. It's an exciting time. Okay. So thank you, my friend. It's been great having you with us today. Good luck in 2024. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And now for the season four end of year episodes business report. Slava Kharini, Kharim Slava, glory to Ukraine, glory to heroes, and also Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel live. The last time I recorded a business section for this podcast, the U.S. Congress was delaying getting badly needed aid to Ukraine. The world was decrying the death of Palestinian civilians, while most were forgetting, and even worse, some were celebrating, the horrible rapes, beheadings, and other beastly crimes Hamas committed on innocent Israelis October 7th that precipitated the Israeli military action. I'd love to say that three weeks later, things have changed for the better, and there were days of hope in the Middle East during the Israel-Hamas ceasefire. But sadly, little is meaningfully improved. As we come to this holiday season, let's hope the Ukrainian military maintains and perseveres through the coming winter, and that we can find a solution in the Mideast that preserves an Israel that does not have to fear its neighbors, and allows a Palestinian people who live next to them to find peace and prosperity and pursue a better quality of life for their families and themselves. Slava Ukraini, Am Yisrael Chai. Congratulations, Yarn, and welcome back. Last time we met, it was too soon to announce Professor Schottenberg's promotion to department head at the medical school in Sarlon. Well, that's official now. Jorn has assumed his new responsibilities, and he will be with us on a more or less regular basis going forward. We may need to work a bit on how to improve his internet speed and reliability when staying overnight in Hamburg. I'm sure we'll work that out. Hey, Spotify, thanks for the good news. Last week, we received from Spotify their wrap-up numbers from 2023. What these numbers told us was that we had more growth this year than we had anticipated. 50% more listeners, 11% more streams, 72% of people listening doing so for the first time. And if we extrapolate up from Spotify's share of our entire listener pool, 3,000 listeners who rate us in their top 10 podcast, 2,000 rating us in their top five, and 750 rating us their overall top. Those are bigger numbers than we thought we had, and we're excited to know that so many people are gaining benefit from this podcast. You will see new graphics and a new email address when we all return in 2024. In the interest of efficiency and recognition of Eric's increasingly demanding schedule, we decided to execute the entire graphic and website cutover to MASH Tsunami. All will be fixed when we come back in the beginning of the new year. The vault is closed for 2023. 
Historically, we've included neither vault conversations nor business sections during the year-end interview series. No more vault this year as well, but there are a few business section comments I want to share. These may change during the interview week or not. If they change, we'll let you know. And that's it for the year. I want to thank our team, Jorn, Louise, Jake, Mike, Eric, Steve, for their work throughout the year, and more important to thank you, the listeners who stuck with us throughout. We've got more interviews ahead, and after that, we'll be back early in January with a new year of episodes and perhaps some new features as well. Until then, enjoy the holiday. Happy 2024, and as always, stay safe and surf on. Bye-bye now. Join us tomorrow when our interview partners will be two leading patient advocates, Neeraj Mystery of the Fatty Liver Foundation and Jen Lee Jones of the Society for Sober Liver Survival. 